Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. The year career, she appeared in more than 20 musicals, acting, singing, and dancing. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. It's a lovely morning here on the Augustana College campus. We've got sun in the forecast for today, but you are just in time right now for a conversation with this week's guest, Neil Dahlstrom, Heritage Manager from John Deere. Well, I'm Kai Swanson. I hope you'll join us here on Quad Cities Public Radio as we while away the hour, check in on the composer's date book, and who knows what else on Saturday Morning Live, Portions Recorded. Well, friends, thanks for joining us. I know you're going to be uh, much enthralled by our guest, as I am every time I have a chance to visit with him. But i got to clear the air, Neil Dahlstrom. I just love the title Heritage Manager, but your title's a little bit more involved in that and covers a lot. But what, what is the formal title? The formal oh, title. I'm sorry. we got to get that taken care of. There you go. Please. Formal title is Branded Properties and Heritage Manager. Branded Properties and Heritage Manager. That is awesome. And I know we're going to get in the course of our conversation into how you came to that amazing position, which sounds like just the greatest Willy Wonka job (laughs) on earth. Although I'm sure like every job, there are its days. But let's start out uh, from the beginning. You're you're a local kid like me. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in East Moline. All right. Um, Born and raised there. Uh, Families from East Moline. And uh, graduated from UT and wanted to go into the history business. That I find fascinating because, you know, I, 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 I kind of, um, I don't know, stumbled my way into history. I had other things that I thought I was going to be getting into b- before college. When did you start to realize that history might be more than just a, a, an interest and might be a, a future? I, I've thought about this a lot. I'm not sure exactly, but my family went to museums quite a bit. When, when we went on vacations, we went to museums. I remember going to Chicago as a kid and just kind of being captivated at the Field Museum mm-hmm. and um, just loved the stories. I remember very vividly then in high school, one of my teachers gave me the Killer Angels. And that book, I took it home. I read it over the weekend and just the way he kind of kind of, I mean, it's just a different version of storytelling, right? It was fictional, but it wasn't really fictional and kind of getting into the inner thoughts of, of, of Lee and, and, and everyone. It was, I just found it fascinating. Well, for background, for those who haven't heard about it, I'd recommend it to Michael Shara's The Killer Angels. And essentially what he did was he 
somewhat fictionalized what happened during the Battle of Gettysburg, and including uh, bringing to the fore um, incredible characters who didn't need any fictionalizing at all, like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the uh, college professor who lied to his college president and said he was taking a sabbatical, and then went and became a commissioned officer and led the 20th Maine, right. I believe, yeah. uh, infantry uh, company or, uh, yeah, uh, regiment. Uh, at and, and some people say he saved the Union uh, with his actions uh, at Gettysburg. And uh, the reason I just raised my eyebrows about that is that was the book that got me into American history. Ah. Uh, but when I, uh, I was a college student, I studied lots of history. Um, but being there in the early 80s, I was captivated by Russian history because Russia was the primary uh, opponent, if you will, the oppositional force on Earth. Um, and so it just that was something that was captivating. Um, and uh, I mostly studied, you know, Asian, Russian history. And uh, I got my hands on that same book. It was the summer between, I think, my junior and senior year at college. Uh, and I just, I was, I was, I was a goner and then went right into Shelby foot. Yep. Uh, yep. Okay. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that was about the same time that that, that PBS documentary came out, what nine parts or something for the, the civil yeah. war that he was a big part of, um, David McCullough narrating. And, um, yeah, I remember, I remember taking my VHS tape and putting it in, telling everyone in the house, they couldn't change the channel so I could record all the episodes and rewatch it back. And. Started Civil War reenacting that year. A Did you bit. really? Yeah, I started. I think I was a junior in high school. Oh, we got to talk um, about that. So was that the ones that they do here, like in McClellan? My first, my first um, reenactment was uh, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Whoa, that's it, like the major leagues, yeah, right? Yeah, it was. I think it was something like a thousand reenactors. <sighs> it was three days, um, and I learned more in three days than I would have learned in years of reading books and uh it was it was a pretty incredible experience and i was pretty smitten after that oh, who wouldn't be i mean come on yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so i mean my the, my timeline was a little bit different i read the book and i thought where has this been all my life and then a year or two went by I started because um i i was told by a mentor at augustana that the the way to really get it is this shelby foot and then all of a sudden when the ken burns came out and i still have the old vhs and it was when i was getting wqpt over the air, right? And so there was like a thunderstorm. So one of my episodes, <laughs> I subsequently went out and bought the DVDs. And now those are anachronistic too, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, and then went on from that and read uh, the, the Battle Cry of Freedom, uh, really dove into Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Uh, In the Hands of Providence is the um, biography that I think I, I most was moved by. Uh, but the, all those characters. Yeah, I remember reading One Gallant Rush, which became the movie Glory. <gasps> mm -hmm. um, and yeah, kind of all those things. See, I knew this is why it was going to be <laughs> awesome to have you out here. I've actually got to leave on a, 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 a work trip next month in Boston. And for this particular conference, I always lead the morning walking group. And we are striking distance from the 54th Massachusetts Monument, yeah. which is on the north edge of Boston Common. Yeah. And those suckers don't know what's going to hit them. But our AM walking group is going to go by yeah. the 54th. If you haven't been to the Paul Revere House, I highly recommend it. Oh, there you it. go. Incredible. See? Yeah. Hey. Yeah. It's also a weird... Um, Kind of, kind of a example of of how cities get built around historic sites. <laughs> yeah, when they do, when they do, when they do. Yeah. Too often, it's uh, sort of just sort of bowled over, right? Yeah. yeah. 
And then there are cities, uh, I just had a chance to visit Key West and the history there of the Hemingway House mm-hmm. and so forth. There, they didn't have to bowl things over because every so often a hurricane comes through sure. and does it for them, sure. which is crazy. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. We're bouncing around, but I knew this is going to happen with you of all people, Neil. Thank you, my guest, Neil Dahlstrom from John Deere. Um, so you got this interest, uh, and did you know by the time you entered college that it was probably going to be a history-related major? I did. So while I was still in high school, I, I um, volunteered at the Rock Island Arsenal Museum. I, I uh, worked in the discovery room at the Putnam Museum. And so what I learned, and this is the realization 20, you know, 30 years later, I like to go through other people's things. <laughs> so that's kind of the common denominator. And, and so like, I really got fascinated with records, right? And especially records that people haven't been through. I like the messy and dirty and unorganized. And so I was going to college and and, and really then, you were, if you're studying history, you're going to go to law school, you're going to teach. Maybe there were some other things I, I wasn't quite sure. I had a little museum experience. Um, but my sophomore year, so I went to Monmouth College. Uh-huh. My sophomore year, one of my professors created a job for me in the college archives, which was just kind of a, a mess, didn't really exist formally. And so um, she created that for me. I worked there, kind of fell in love with it, and uh, I ended up studying. Um, I was an education major. I dropped that. I was in a classroom with sixth graders. They ate me alive. I knew I couldn't do that for a living. Um, so I ended up with a history major and a classics major Awesome. Um, and an art minor. So the work I do today, somehow I was on that path. I just didn't know it. The, the irony is after college, I moved away. Yeah. So what did you do after when you moved away? So I, I left. I graduated Monmouth. I went to Eastern Illinois University. I got a master's in historical administration with a concentration in archives. So it was, it was studying. It was to go into museums and archives. Yeah. Um, it was a concentrated program, one year program, really intensive. Then you have to do an internship or get a job or something. And I ended up getting a job at a startup archive in Alexandria, Virginia, um, documenting the history of the commercial space industry. Wow. So my um, my boss who started this was the U.S. president of a Russian space company and just felt like the history of commercial space needed to be documented. So this is 1999, 2000, before commercial space was a thing, really. And um, most of our funding came from NASA. I was the only employee. And I'm cataloging records that he had collected from Werner, Werner von Braun. And uh, the Reagan administration and just kind of lots of odds and ends of attempts at private space exploration. Um, That lasted two years, and then I was unemployed. Uh, Our funding got cut. My my boss at the time, he and a partner um, bought the Mir Space Station for space tourism Mm -hmm. and signed the world's first space tourists. They didn't (laughs) actually get to go to space, but they were – so that was kind of – the people that randomly I, I was around, but I was I was looking for work in 2001, and a buddy of mine um, who worked at Deer said Deer's hiring an archivist, and I didn't know they had one. Yeah, and um, stars aligned, and I was I was back in the Quad Cities. Well, and I'm, gl- I'm glad that you uh, mentioned the Rock Island Arsenal Museum. We had Patrick Alley on a while ago. We should probably get him back on here and find out how things are going there. But so you come back and, you know, I think in the in the light of uh, at, at a, many colleges, they have something called special collections or archives or something. And I think about my colleagues there. In fact, I was just 
you know, uh, bugging them this week. Uh, but it, it was it was refreshing to me when I first heard and thought about, of course, an organization like Deer needs an archivist. So when you first came in, I mean, uh, what were that? What were those impressions from the first day on the job? Because every archives is different, yeah. and some will be in a you know good to go state, and some will be like, what happened here? <laughs> Deer's archive was in an incredibly good state. Yeah, I would uh, imagine. Yeah, it had been around since 1976. But even before then, Deer had what they called an agricultural library, which dated to 1900, 1905. So they'd preserved a lot of records. Mm. And um, the, the archives that had pretty steady staff. They knew what they were doing. Um, but I just, I remember the scale of it, the size of it. And, 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 and for us, archives... So we talk about records, and to me, everything is a record, an, mm-hmm. an, an artifact, a piece of equipment, a piece of art, a document, a photograph, a film, whatever. They're all records of something, right? And, and so our collection is um, millions of photographs, films, advertising, operators' manuals, and parts catalogs, um, the business correspondence of Charles Deere, our second CEO, yeah. and, and William Butterworth. So a lot. Of, that's the, the material I, I really – I really love to read, but art collection, equipment collection. So there's just a pretty massive scope of materials. I'm, I do want to spend some time with the art uh, collection uh, too, because that's a that's an important thing that many people in the Quad Cities don't realize what a tremendous uh, art collection Deer has amassed over the time. But it's it's got to be interesting. I would imagine that this was a family enterprise in many ways for maybe its first almost century or so, because you don't really see the first non-deer persons, family persons leading until you get well past the middle of the 20th century, I think. Yeah, 1982. 82. Uh, yeah, William Hewitt's the last family member to, to, to run the company, 1955 to 1982. Um, and then uh, Bob Hansen takes over. Yeah, wonderful and man. Fairly local. <laughs> Very local. So it's East Moline. Yeah, and it now, goes Now, did you from, ever get a chance to meet Bob Hansen? Um, I did not, no. He was, uh, if you don't mind, he was one of the most extraordinary people I have ever met because here was obviously a person who understood the gravity of his position and how his decisions would affect families all over the world. And I couldn't imagine that kind of responsibility. But if you ran into him, he was the nicest. I mean, he was an East Moline guy and he served in the Navy and he came to Augustana and went here on, you know, using GI benefits and that sort of thing. And he had a very special relationship with our music host here at WVIK, Mindy Heisel, because later in his life, he had time to take up the piano. Uh, and he would have ongoing conversations with her, and he would get his own special requests. And I, Mindy hasn't talked much about this, but if he was working on a particular piece, they would talk, and she would make sure to play it at a certain time. Now, we didn't do that much request work, but when it was Mr. Hansen, <laughs> and of course, he wouldn't abide by that. It was Bob. Uh, he was such a, a delightful person, and I, I do miss him, but he was a, a, a great leader, and uh, I, I'm glad to see that the company went uh, very well well under his leadership and continues to do so. Yeah, and yeah. he was he he was CEO at an incredibly difficult very time difficult through time. the 80s and my the my favorite photo that I've seen of him is um standing at a grill flipping hamburgers in 1987 for our 150th anniversary. And what I've learned about him 
that's the perfect photo of him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, super guy. And I'm glad that we have a building named for him at Augustana, but I'm getting a little bit far afield here. So the archives were uh, in, in good shape. Um, but I, your, your position has grown. I mean, it's not, it's archives is certainly a part of it. Uh, but how, tell us a little bit about that trajectory. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very evolutionary. When I started at Deer in the Archives, I was what we called a technical services archivist. I was actually doing conservation work. So that's what I did for the first year. We had a conservation lab. It was pretty basic conservation um, for, for records. And then I became the reference archivist, which meant I did research um, for, it was mostly internal. Uh, a lot of it is, is legal research. They're looking for documentation on something, um, communication, someone's writing a speech, they need to verify facts. Um, external publications, some media, there were a lot of collector magazines, so we'd have folks come in. But that was a time still where someone was sitting in the office every day. My job was to research, pull materials, um, and put everything away. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what it what it became. I, I had that job for, oh, five or six years. So I, I formed a habit where, um, so archives are challenging because you just can't, it's not a Google search. Right. right? So I had a habit of if somebody asked for something, I'd go pull a box, I'd sit on the floor, and I'd read everything in the box. And over time, you just pick things up because these are all things that you don't know to look for. When I was in college, one of my professors said, the book you need is next to the book you're looking for. I love that. And I've always carried it with me. And he I meant you go to the, right? You go to the, 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 the card catalog or you type in a search because you think you know what you're looking for. Well, go scan the shelves because there's something better. And I've always carried that with me. You know, and I've often thought that um, at any college, but particularly the one that, that I get to work for, it's important in the library and on campus to for students to bump into things that they weren't looking for. So in the library, and of course, stacks are not used the way they were when you and I were students, mm -hmm. but also the art collection. As you walk across the campus, you're going to bump into, hopefully you're paying attention, uh, a painting that'll, that'll really set you back a little bit. Um, my guest today is Neil Dahlstrom. We're going to talk more about these amazing objects that are part of the heritage of deer, and may I say, by extension, probably the heritage of all of us in this community. Uh, but I'm grateful that you're here. But, you know, here at WVIK, we love all kinds of history. And yes, that includes a little music history. This is the Composer's Datebook for February 17th. I'm John Burge. Today's date marks the birthday of the American composer, choral conductor, and educator, Betty Jackson King. She was born in Chicago in 1928, where she earned her master's in composition at Roosevelt University. Her master's thesis was an opera titled Saul of Tarsus, whose libretto was written by her father, the Reverend Frederick D. Jackson. Betty Jackson King is perhaps best known for her sacred and choral works, especially her arrangements of spirituals. According to her family, her musical career reflected her deep religious faith. As she often said, over my head I hear music in the air, so there must be a God somewhere. But King also wrote secular works, including a ballet for children, chamber works, art songs, and solo pieces for piano and organ. She was an active teacher and choral conductor in her native Chicago, before moving to Wildwood, New Jersey, where she taught, conducted, and composed for the rest of her life. A few years before Betty Jackson King's death in 1994, soprano Kathleen Battle performed and recorded 
Rise Up in the Chariot, one of Jackson's spiritual arrangements, at a gala-televised Carnegie Hall concert of spirituals. Composer's Datebook is produced by APM, American Public Media, in collaboration with the American Composers Forum, reminding you that all music was once new. Support for Composer's Datebook on WVIK comes from the Quad City Symphony Orchestra, where access meets inspiration. The QCSO seeks to inspire, entertain, and engage the entire Quad Cities community through music, music education, and cultural leadership. And you can learn more, friends, at qcso.org. My guest this week on Saturday Morning Live, portions recorded, is Neil Dahlstrom, uh, heritage manager uh, and historian for Deere and Company, uh, John, uh, John Deere, and by extension, really a huge part of our uh, community and our heritage. But uh, Neil, I was thinking, we listened to that little piece on some music history. There's tremendous art history at Deere. Any, anyone who's gone to the world headquarters has seen um, some of the art from especially the uh, early mid 20th century that is so profound when when agriculture was you know being celebrated as a as a national imperative of course during the, after the dust bowl drought and the depression and everything but tell us a little bit about the art history aspect of your work yeah it's incredible and 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 we define art very loosely and i could go on for days and days about it and i won't but most of the collection uh the what i call the new headquarters building which opened in 1964 um, was fairly sterile when it opened and, uh, the company started collecting art and it was an incredibly good time to start buying art in the 1960s. Um, we've got five Grant Woods in the collection. We've got an incredible Henry Moore sculpture called Hill Arches in front of the building. Uh, very eclectic. We've got art pieces from the old headquarters building, which was on third Avenue in, in Moline, um, up until 1964. So pieces of the boardroom, stained glass windows, mm. portraits of John Deere, um, if anyone's ever seen the leaping deer, um, sculpture, there's one at the airport, there's one in front of headquarters in different places. Those are actually acquired at the world's fair in Chicago in 1893. Really? They were, they were ordered by Charles Deere, who was one of two state commissioners from the state of Illinois at the world's fair. Um, and we have 13 of those in our, in our collection. Um, we're incredibly proud of those. They used to be on the rooftops of, of our sales branches. Um, so a lot of history there. And I'm not, I'm I'm not giving too much away, but you're going to start seeing more John Deere art over at the Figgy here relatively oh, wonderful. soon. wonderful! So we're really excited to share more of the art with the community. Well, the headquarters building I think should qualify as a work of art uh, designed by Aero Sora, and then the Finnish uh, American architect who designed the uh, the Arch in St. Louis. Yeah, that's right. And 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 one of the the best moments of my career, we hosted his son. He was working on a, a documentary about his dad who he barely knew. Hmm. Um, he was working on a documentary and he came to visit us and he spent several days with us and we showed him color film footage of his father. Hmm. And he started to tear up and he had never seen anything like it before. And he scoured the world looking for archival footage. And I think it just spoke to the strength of our collection, the fact that it still existed 
and just kind of our commitment that we understand how rich and important these things are, but kind of putting those pieces together was just incredibly powerful. So did the son, I wouldn't know, did he grow up in Finland or the United States? Uh, he grew up in the United States, okay. but okay. he uh, uh, his parents were, were separated and his dad worked all the time. Yeah, so right. that was so, his memory. And so the documentary ah, was yeah, really yeah. a coming back to understanding who his father who his was. Father was yeah. So it was very emotional for him. So we just heard a little bit about classical music. One of my favorite works of classical music, uh, it was The River. It was the music for the film, uh, The River, which was, you know, New Deal propaganda around the Tennessee Valley Authority and rural electrification. And I know there were some great WPA uh, and PWA projects that used film. Is that any part of your film collection? Because I'm sure they would have tied up with deer somehow. Not that I'm aware yeah. of. The, the oldest film in our collection is a... Um a tractor tutorial from 1929 for a, a, a model GP tractor. So it's a silent film, you know, the kind where you see some footage and then some text comes up and, and there's a guy on a tractor and he's, they're spinning around in snow to show the, the, the brake differential and different things. And so it's really incredible. And the film collection for us runs through the late nineties, early two thousands, you start getting into VHS and different types of formats. And it's one of the challenges of archives, regardless of the format, you have to deal with it whether it's a 35 millimeter film um, or a floppy disk or a thumb drive or whatever. So those are the the challenges we're grappling with today is digital media. Popping back to art for just a moment, I, I know because uh, I had a chance to, to do a tour um, at the world headquarters that uh, not only the acquisitions that are somewhat thematically related to American agric uh, agriculture, you have just plain old world classic great works. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got to take a team to keep those in, in good conservation status. Uh, yeah, we have an incredible curator. Um, our maintenance department at John Deere they literally do a lot of the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So they're the ones moving antique tractors and equipment for us. They're they're the ones supporting the art collection. Um, it's it's interesting because a lot of our art is not deer related. And oftentimes people contact us and say, hey, I've, I've worked on this piece. It's a tractor. And we say, we've got plenty of John Deere art. Um, a, a big part of our collection are um, pieces by Walter Haskell Hinton, mm. who I call, he was our Norman Rock uh, mm -hmm. Rockwell. But he did advertising for deer in the 1930s and 40s. So he'd do a painting and that'd become the cover of an advertising brochure. Um, so we have those types of pieces in our collection as well. So we kind of differentiate between brand art and art, fine art. Right, right, right. But there is some stuff in there that I was just, uh, I mean, I, you would expect to bump into it in a museum in Paris. And, right. and there it is right there. And we've we've sent art to Paris. Have you? And London and Mannheim, Germany. Yeah. Um, uh, Crystal Bridges Museum, like all over the place. And that's why we're excited to put some of this on exhibit over at the Figgy. I remember once getting to go out to the uh, Barbara Osher Gallery at the San Francisco uh, Museum, and I'm blanking on the name of the museum, but it's out in Golden Gate Park. I should know it because it's a very famous one. But I had just a brief amount of time away from this conference, so I hustle out there, and I'm checking it out. And my one day to be there, and it's a retrospective on, on um, uh, uh, Grant Wood, and half of the pieces they had on display were uh, on loan from the <laughs> Figgy Art yeah. Museum. Yeah. So I went, you know, most of the way across the country uh, just to see what I could see right across right. the river. So, okay, we were talking a little bit, though, about the trajectory of your position. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, Deer doesn't do anything without a lot of strategy behind it. So right. tell me about how that played into the way this position was crafted and how it fits in with Deer's global mission. 
Sure. I mean, uh, evolutionary jobs follow follow people, mm-hmm. you know, and, re- and responsibilities. But kind of the the position now that I'm in oversees the archives, the um, John Deere Library, and the branded properties are our museums and historic sites. So the John Deere Pavilion in Moline, the John Deere Tractor and Engine Museum in Waterloo, Iowa, and the John Deere Historic Site in Grand Detour, Illinois. So. We're just kind of all over the map, which suits me perfectly because I'm all over the map and my interests <laughs> and, and kind of experiences I've had during the course of my career. Um, I actually left the archives in 2008 and took a job in the corporate library. So I left history behind. Hmm. I was very conflicted about it, um, but it was the best thing that I did because I had an entirely new perspective on it. And when I returned in 2013, um, I understood why sometimes people didn't hear me out and didn't understand my position on things because now I understood it. Ah, the the uh, facility in Grand Detour, did the company always have a stake in that? Or wasn't it like privately run for a while and then later it became part of the family? It was actually acquired by Catherine Butterworth. Oh, really? Um, in, oh, I want to say about 1919. Wow. And, and she started to restore it. I, I put that in air quotes. Um, and it was called the John Deere Homestead. Mm. So she would visit up there. She'd take family there. And um, so she restored it. Fortunately for us, she bought a lot of property around it. Hmm. Um, fast forward, she donated it to the John Deere Foundation. So we actually operated on behalf of the John Deere Foundation. Um, it's been open to the public since 1964. Hmm. It was one of the first properties put on the National Register. Really? Um, we've got four acres up there, his home, a working blacksmith shop. We still employ blacksmiths at John Deere. Uh, we have a museum built on top of the archaeological excavation of his original blacksmith shop. And uh, we're getting ready to open again in April. We're open from April to October. And uh, it's just incredible. I, mm. I get, I'm getting goosebumps right now just <laughs> talking about it. It's just you step back in time. You realize challenges and how difficult it was. Uh, John and his wife had 10 children. They lost five of them yeah. before their teenage years. Yeah, yeah. So incredibly successful and, and incredibly tragic as well. So we remember that place with a lot of young kids running around, including Charles Deere. Yeah, right. That's oh, that's amazing. Now, that of course, he eventually moves uh, down uh, the the Rock River and, and comes here. Um, how do you – is there any way to separate the Quad Cities community from John Deere? There's not. He's been here since 1848, mm. and um, just just we're so intertwined. Mm. And uh, for for me, it's I would just always feel like I'm at home at John Deere. And I didn't grow up around John Deere, but I grew up a mile from where my office is now. Ironically, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's always been there. And I think it's at the end of the day, the, the the way I put it to people is, I live here, I work here. You know, my my family's here, so I want the Quad Cities to be successful. Right. Right. Um, and I think that's what it's always been about. And we've been here a pretty long time. Well, and that that is, it's sort of, it, it's in the area of breathe. You were talking, we were talking about the new headquarters. I remember when I was a little kid, when it was open, and, and it is, I mean, essentially, but that uh, for parents like my parents, uh, <clears throat> very cheap, uh, it was a free thing to do with kids. And yeah. you could climb on the tractors and do yeah. that sort of thing. But then I also think growing up in this neighborhood right here, we're, we're on the neighborhood straddling Rock Island and Moline's uh, border. Everybody's folks, you know, in this neighborhood either worked for Augustana, Deer, or Farmall. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those, right? And uh, it was just part of the area you breathed. Uh, and yeah, so I mean, I feel like I'm, 
you know how they have scent memories? When yeah. I go into the headquarters, I, I that's a scent memory from my childhood. It's coming out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and some things have changed. You can't just walk into headquarters no, now. No, no. Just so everyone knows that. So I'm playing, you can thank go out you, there, Neil. but come to the pavilion, sit on the equipment. But I'm the same way. My dad worked at Case IH. Yeah. And so when I go eat at the Combine um, or go down to the Bend, yeah. I, I vividly remember the parking lot where sometimes we'd pick my dad up from work. And that's where it uh, was. From, from the shop down there. Yeah, I should have clarified. That was an yeah. old, see, I'm an old guy, Neil. And that was <laughs> a long time ago. But now the pavilion is, and that's where I've taken yeah. my grandchildren. Yeah. So the pavilion is the place you want to go. But it's just part of that fabric of, of who we are, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to be full of spoiler alerts um, today. <laughs> go right but, ahead. But invite everyone to the pavilion at the end of the May, end of May. We're opening an incredibly cool exhibit on the history of John Deere Toy. The toys. Um, so we're pretty excited. And the old 10 speeds. I hope those are in there somewhere. <laughs> Not yet, <laughs> Not but yet. we're working on it. The old 10 speeds, we we actually have a bike, a John Deere bike in our collection from 1895, really? the first time we were in the bicycle business. My goodness. I Well, yeah. Okay. So I always like to ask this uh, for people listening at home. Is there a particular website people can go to to make sure they find the details about that? Uh, so go to visitjohndeer.com. Got it. Visitjohndeer.com. Yep, and that'll take you to the pavilion and all the branded properties. We also have a, an app called Visit John Deere, and there's a ton of history. We spotlight artifacts. You can take a virtual tour of the John Deere home and granted tour. Um, lots of cool stuff. Augmented reality. You can try on virtual John Deere hats, design your own hat. There's just a lot of cool stuff there on the app. Okay. We're going to get to some <laughs> other things here in a minute, but I got to tell you this story. So uh, years, a few years back, I invited a bunch of colleagues from higher ed institutions, literally from Long Island to L.A., and they came here, and we brought them all to the pavilion and to the store, and they were all captivated with everything John Deere. And then a, a colleague from Scripps College out on the West Coast had a great story for me. She was wearing her pink John Deere hat, and uh, a young woman at the where she was said, "Wow, I just I love that brand." And she said, "And she said, well, I got to see their their headquarters and see where they make the tractors and combines." And her friends, "Wait, they make tractors?" She thought it was a fashion brand just because of the coolness of the yeah. logo. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I just I think that's wonderful, and I love sending people. Uh, down to the pavilion whenever we can. But um, we are going to get to some other things. You talked about the visitjohndeer.com, but you're also uh, part of Visit Quad Cities. So I, there seems to be just a logical linkage there of getting people to come to our community because it is a sort of a destination attraction organization and then linking that right into the great things that Deer has to attract people. So that seems like a natural fit. Yeah, it's it's a perfectly natural fit, and we want people to come to the Quad Cities and, and enjoy it. Um, I love living here. I love riding my bike along the river. Um, I love when dear people come from out of town or from other parts of the world uh, to show them around because I think it's a great place to live, and we like to show off kind of what, what we call all of our assets here. Um, so, yeah, serving, serving on the board of Visit Quad Cities is definitely a natural extension of that because we're all in this together. Right. And it, it, it's, it's key. It's very important. You don't have to look far to see where large corporations have left mid-sized communities because they have a hard time attracting people due to quality of life issues. And so, dear, it being part of Visit Quad Cities and that, that whole mission of making sure this is a vibrant place where young professionals would want to make a career with Deer or any other place. So it makes good sense to me. What other boards, committees, that kind of thing are you engaged with? Yeah, I've been pretty busy lately. So I've, <laughs> I've, um, 
I've, I'm actually on the uh, Ag Advisory Board for the Smithsonian Museum of American History. So I've been doing that since 2016, My goodness. which has been an incredibly cool experience. I get to go out there and, and, and work on a lot of projects there, the Food History Gala every year, and, and kind of help advise on some of their agricultural exhibits. Um, where my, do those exhibits, where are they placed within the Smithsonian? Because I love going to D.C. and visiting different joints. It's, but It's changing constantly. Yeah. And we're actually taking our family vacation uh, out there this summer. So yeah. we'll, we'll show our son in, who's in eighth grade. Um, I'll get to show off a little bit. But they have the oldest existing John Deere plow as well. Do built, they really? Built in 1838. And which, but which, which Smithsonian, is that the, the Museum American of American History? History. American History. Yep. Okay, yep. gotcha. So we'll I will... go see Ju- Judy Garland's slippers and <laughs> Julia Child's kitchen. And, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of all the things. Yeah. So, so that's something that I've been really privileged to be a part of. And, and, and most recently, I've joined the board of, of Crime Stoppers in the Quad Cities. Okay. So Visit Quad <laughs> Cities makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for what Crime Stoppers does for our community. But what got you into that? Just, I was asked. Huh. Um, the, the real version is, is um, uh, through Travel Baseball. Yeah. Okay. You know, and, okay. And 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 um, so John Leach, who who kind of heads the organization, asked me to be a part of it because he wanted someone who doesn't know the the space, right? You want someone from the outside it, that perspective. And right. I was very much looking for something that I know nothing about. And I love um, that. So it was just kind of a nice connection, and I'm learning a lot. And Crime Stoppers does so much for the area, you know, and and and. We're always looking for tips, and we're giving rewards for tips, and 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 just working to 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 keep the the quad cities safe. So it actually fits pretty nicely with visit quad cities. We're all part of the same kind of sure, ecosystem, exactly. And let's remember to talk about that amazing sun of yours here in just a minute. But part of that amazing quad cities ecosystem is we have quad city arts, and quad city arts brings these incredible artists to our community. And I want to tell you a little bit about Jessica Fichot. She is coming to be uh, an, an resident artist in our community next week, and so we wanted to give you a little taste of her music. Now she's uh, blends American. Chinese and French chanteuse influences. And we're going to hear a little something right now, courtesy of our friends at Quad City Arts. Uh, Friends, if I can make this um, particular bit of technology work, we're going to hear Jessica Fichot and Le Secret. Chaque jour, chaque nuit, comme une chanson, une mélodie, c'est un refrain qui se répète, mais sans couplet et sans intro, sans pensant cola, sans solo, ya la la la, ya la la la, ce secret, ce secret qui me hante le, ya la la la, ya la la la, ya la si je le garde, je deviens folle, mais si je te dis, je crois que je te Yeah, 
Chaque nuit comme une chanson, une mélodie C'est un Qui se répète Mais sans couplet, sans intro Sans bon, sans coude, sans solo Friends, that was La Sacrette by Jessica Fichot, and she will be a Quad City Arts visiting artist. If you like the sound of that, and I can tell you Neil Dahlstrom and I here in the studio sure do, you can hear her Tuesday at 6 p.m. at the Moline Public Library. You could also hear her at noon on Friday at Theo's Java Cafe in Rock Island. It's great to see them once again open and, and going at it. But you can find out all of Jessica Fichot's local performances information at quadcityarts.com and then look for the events tab again my guest is neil dahlstrom and uh you know i just got to give a little bit of a uh, acknowledgement here i've known you for a long time this is the longest i've had a chance to just have you as a captive audience but uh i am also a huge fan of your sons because he's one of the most interesting people i know of uh and uh i'll let you go ahead and tell people why but I just always look forward to what he's into next, uh, but I get the sense he's been that way probably since birth. <laughs> he's been that way, yeah. He, he, he's in eighth grade. His name's Grant, and yeah, he is the most interesting person I, I, I know, and, and, and I've in recent years said I always knew he was smarter than me, but I thought I had more time before he overtook me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's just, he's very passionate about things. He Since the age of five, he wanted to be an umpire, so he was all in. Um, and and so in recent years he's uh, become a, a local broadcaster. Mm-hmm. And amazingly enough, um, QC Sportsnet Ken Jacoby reached out to Grant last year and said, "I've listened to your stuff on on YouTube. Grant used to do uh, game simulations, yep. Madden and MLB The Show, and he would broadcast them. And so that's how he practiced. And he would watch people and he'd post these videos. And Ken called and and said, "Yeah, I know he's only in eighth grade." But he seems to have the gift. Hmm. And um, so this past year, Grant was the radio announcer for uh, Moline football games. And uh, so we got to do that. Recently, he's been doing Western Big Six basketball. He's done five or six storm games now. 
and he's a much bigger deal than I'll ever be. And um, what impresses me is the, the the preparation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he spends hours. Uh, last year, he won the um, first ever junior broadcaster contest for Marquee, the Chicago Cubs network. So I got to live vicariously, a lifelong Cub fan. <laughs> I got to follow my, at the time, seventh grade son around who got to to do an interview with Elise Menneker in the dugout. Mm. Um, we got to go up and sit with JD and Boog in the booth for two innings. <laughs> oh, and I was just a, a a bump in the corner who just had to watch because I was following my my seventh grade son around because he has all the talent. Oh, <laughs> well, and so the, you talked about his uh, his umpire days, and I had yeah. so much fun watching that. But yeah. you set him up with all scale size padding and equipment and all this kind of stuff. And our friends at uh, the River Bandits would even let yeah. him kind of be behind. Uh, I mean, in the stands, but I mean, and it, help out there. It was incredible. So he saw someone online who was about his age, who went to a minor league game out east, and in full uniform, and called balls and strikes from the stands. And, and, and we kind of had this conversation of, well, if you do something like that, you kind of set yourself up for people to kind of jump on you, right? And mm, we didn't. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I finally said, well, he really wants to do it. So we'll go to a game like on a Wednesday night, an early game in the season. Hopefully there won't be a lot of people there. And someone from the Bandits came up and said, this is so cool. Do you want to meet the umpires? And um, the umpires were great. They were young guys. And uh, we started going to games, and the bandits kind of adopted him. And then he started rubbing down baseballs uh, before games. We had a couple umps. One of them is in AAA right now, actually, who said, um, I'll, "I'll give you, a, I'll text you whenever we're in town." So he started. He he'd give me a heads up. We'd go over, and it was just kind of the power of a lot of people who were incredibly supportive. Mm. We had at one point someone came to the game and said, "Hey, I saw I saw you on the news." I've umped my whole life, but I'm moving out of town. I can't ump anymore. I'm going to go get all my gear for you. Oh. And gifted Gran all of his gear. Oh, my. So it's, it was really uh, uh, incredible. And you just find that at the end of the day, like, uh. people are incredibly good and supportive. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. With the broadcasting, is he still interested in the umpiring, too? He, he is. Yeah, good, good, Now good. it's a matter of scheduling. Exactly. I spend my, my, my days <laughs> shuttling him. He did... The storm game last Friday, two girls regional games Tuesday. He did the um, the UT Geneseo game last night. Hmm. So I'm now just officially a chauffeur. Way to go, Grant! <laughs> and good for you, Dad, for being so. And and we give a shout out to Mom, Karen, uh, as well. Uh, someone that I used to get a chance to work with, and it's uh, the things that I just I love following that kid. So. Uh, keep it up. You're doing some amazing, amazing stuff. All right. We've tried to cover a bunch of different things here, but uh, there is so much ground to cover on the John Deere front. I know we weren't going to spend a ton of time talking about this, but I do want people to know that you have written a remarkable book called Tractor Wars. What was the genesis behind the project? I mean, of all the things you could have done, because I think I get the sense that uh, John Deere really appreciates what you've done for the brand and everything else. What brought you to this project? Yeah, the the book came out two years ago, and it's really the origin story of the farm tractor. Yeah, yeah. And I never really had it. This is a, a, a dark secret of mine. I never knew much about tractors. I don't come from an ag background. Hey, I get I'm it. not mechanically minded, but I've been asked questions, of course, a lot of questions over the years, and, and they're questions like, what was the first John Deere tractor? Which seems like a very simple question. It's an incredibly complicated answer. I bet. And I just didn't know the answer. Or um, things like, 
why was John Deere late getting into the tractor business? And I'd say, well, 1918 seems pretty early to me, but I don't fully understand the scope of it. So after not knowing anything for long enough, I decided to dig into it. And five years later, I had a book. <laughs> so, you know, piece of cake, real, real simple. <laughs> well, one of the things I've always, I, I guess I haven't thought enough about, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about, is that, yes, Deer got into uh, that uh, sector uh, a, a little bit late, but that immediately made this place not just uh, synonymous with him, but a magnet for these others. Because Cyrus McCormick decides to bring the Farmall factory here in the late 20s. Uh, I mean, you're locating, yeah. you know, cheek by jowl with your competitor. How did stuff like that happen? Yeah, it, it's what fascinated me. And so first of all, I didn't want to write a coffee table book or a picture right, book. I, right. I wanted to write it from a perspective that I knew about. So it's, it's very much a business history. Why are decisions made? We often look and say, well, this happened, but we don't say, what was the context? We're talking World War One, Spanish influenza, um, intense competition, mechanization. I don't want to give up my horse. All these things are going yeah. on. And there's yeah. this battle between Deer and International Harvester. And, and I like to picture things like the day that William Butterworth opened up the, the the newspaper to see the front page headline that International Harvester had bought a factory in Rock Island to build tractors just down the street. Like I can just imagine like yeah, really? the frustration and anger that he must have felt when he saw that happen. So I'm really interested in those pieces, but it's a technology story. How do you convince farmers to go from horsepower to mechanical power? Um, really an important um, period in American and world history um, and it's a local, it's a local story at the sure. end of the day. Well, and I, I like that angle because I had a grandfather who was involved in electrification. So he wasn't just selling light bulbs. He was selling the, the power lines that yeah. would come to the farm and give you a light bulb. But I really don't understand, and I'm sorry that I'm so thick, but I don't get why McCormick would do that other than he thought maybe he could muscle them out or maybe take advantage of the suppliers that were there. So I mean, Harvester was the Harvester was 10 times the size of John Deere yeah. at the time. And what they did was they bought the abandoned factory of the Moline Plow Company, which was building the universal tractor. Oh, they went okay. bankrupt. Yeah. Deer actually looked into buying that facility, but they couldn't afford it. Really? Um, and so they passed. We'd just gone into the tractor business. Deer was the little engine that could. Yeah. Trying to figure out what to build. Harvester was the behemoth, the giant. Sure. And they were all competing against Henry Ford, who had 75% market share. So he, Henry Ford was the name in town that everyone was chasing. Well, and I find it fascinating because I went through high school here in town just when the bottom fell out, right? And the ag depression, a lot of global factors that went into that. And But just from a kid's point of view, uh, you went from Rock Island having this immense property tax base that was plowed into high school and, and all of the opportunities I had as a high school kid. And then within a few years, wondering, can we keep teaching foreign languages? I mean, it was just so traumatic. Is that Would that be a, maybe a, a future course of study for some historian to look at how that happened and, and the impact it had here on our community? Yeah, I yeah. think so. There's a, there's a great book um, called A Corporate Tragedy, which is about kind of the demise of international harvesting. Exactly. Um, 
and so there's a lot of that. I think it's it's largely untapped, and, and someone should look into it. Maybe I will at some point, but I'd love it if somebody else did. Well, I do recall uh-huh. that you know I, I was a pretty uh, right-brained fella in the classes I took at Augie, but the guys I would hang out with who were econ majors, marketing majors, uh, management majors, rather, they would often say that Augie faculty would say, okay, uh, here's how you do it, here's how you don't do it, and that the here's how you do it was Deer and Company, <laughs> and here's how you don't do it was that factory that isn't around here anymore, right? So Yeah, yeah. And, and I spend most of my time looking at how do you do it, but you only figure that out by not doing it, right. you know, and, and there's a lot that goes into it. I'm fascinated by the decision because at the end of the day, this is people making decisions. Now, you mentioned earlier that you might be taking a family vacation, no specifics, but you get out to the Smithsonian and you get to stand next to your spouse and your child and say, how do you like that? That's got to be yeah. a great feeling when you're at the Smithsonian. Uh, I'm pretty excited. Well, and also, you know, I lived out there for a couple of years. So this is partially going to be a vacation of I used to live in that dumpy apartment and I used to go here. Um, so there'll be some of that too. It's, I mean, DC is not an easy place to, to no. hang out in. And when we, uh, we send students out there for internships or, you know, graduating and going on to things and you got to find five people that you like enough to share a two bedroom apartment with, because that's the only way you're going to do it there. Are you involved in another writing project right now? Anything you could tell us about? Um, yeah, I think so. I've actually spent the last year working on the Black Hawk War. Have you really? And, you know, it's amazing. You you kind of start to make these connections. John Deere moved here in 1848. Right. Black Hawk was here 16 years before mm-hmm. um, and then just relocated across the river. And so I'm just really interested in the evolution of the area. Uh, it was a big deal. It, it, a lot of U.S. presidents started their careers essentially here. Right. Um, and, and so putting those pieces together, it, of course, ties into George Davenport and his brutal murder in 1845. Mm-hmm. The relationship between Davenport um, and Blackhawk, mm-hmm. I think, is incredibly fascinating. Um, and so it's a period I just don't know a lot about, and I feel like I should. Have you read Carrie Trask's uh, Blackhawk and the Battle for the Heart of America? That's um, a great— I ordered it two days ago. Did you really? Along with my battlefield guide— oh. Um, and Gina Shantz wrote a great book on um, on George Davenport that came out a few years ago. Um, but think of all the people who were involved in that war. Lincoln was a militia captain briefly. Uh, Jefferson Davis. Uh, Robert E. Lee had come here before with the Corps of Engineers. I mean, that's yeah. I can't wait yeah. to read that working, book. Working for Montgomery Meggs, Ugh. who later on helps build the prison camp on Rock Island Arsenal. And who also chose uh, Lee's former family, his wife's family estate, as the site of the Arlington National Secretary. Wow, so many stories. And we didn't even scratch the surface. But I got to thank my guest uh, very much. Gratitude to you, Neil Dahlstrom, Heritage Manager, and a million other things for John Deere. Thank you, Neil, for being with us. I really appreciate it. And I want to invite all of you to join us next week uh, here on Saturday Morning Live, portions recorded, when our guest will be the May of Bettendorf, Iowa, Bob Gallagher. I think that'll be a lot of fun, but I, I don't see how it could be more fun than this today, Neil. Thanks again. And remember, friends, when we do come back on the air, you're going to hear it right here at Quad Cities NPR, WVIK 90.3 FM and HD in Rock Island, and at 95.9 FM K240DZ in Dubuque. Stay tuned, friends. Away with words. Or is, oh, I'm sorry. I think we're getting back to another show coming up here. i got to get my stuff straight here, Neil. Uh, I think it's, wait, wait, don't tell me. We're all going to find out together, friends, here on your public radio station, WVIK Rock Island.